Let's uh, pray before we uh, come to look at God's word together. Let's pray. God, as we uh, come to your word now, uh, would you teach us afresh? Would you remind us of who we are in Christ and what a glorious salvation that you have provided? And would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer? Amen. There is a brand of Christianity today which says, come to Jesus and everything will be wonderful. Maybe some of you were even sold that idea yourselves. Become a Christian and life will be so much easier. All of the problems that you have are going to be solved. And yet, for anyone who has been a Christian for more than five minutes, you'll probably agree that, well, life doesn't seem that easy now. It doesn't feel like everything's just as wonderful as we were maybe told. And to be honest, if it solved problems A, B, and C, well, it seemed to bring with it problems X, Y, and Z. If we're honest, life as a Christian can be quite difficult, can't it? But what do we do when life gets difficult as a Christian? How do we respond in suffering? What do we do with this mismatch between what we've maybe been told from some well-meaning Christians and then what we experience in the everyday life. Well, I'm gonna say that if we work out what that looks like over the next number of weeks, I dare say that we might have got the message of First Peter. And so to begin with, I want us to take a little trip in the helicopter to get a sort of big picture overview over the whole of First Peter. Because I think sometimes as we study books of the Bible, we can sometimes miss the forest for the trees. So you might have to do a little bit of flicking back and forth in your Bibles here so you can open up again there if you've, um, if you've closed it. I think it's page 1217. But I think it's worth getting our heads above the trees here for a second. What is this book all about? Why would we even bother picking First Peter as a series? Well, turn first to the end of 1 Peter, in chapter 5 and verse 12. And we're going to see here what Peter thinks that he has written about in this book. What does he say that he's been doing? Well, he says that he has been encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So stand fast in it. So he is outlining here what the true grace of God is. And over the next number of weeks, hopefully, we're going to see what that looks like. Remember, other people might have told us any number of things of what Christianity is going to be like. But Peter says, well, this is the true grace of God, what I have written. This is the real McCoy. And he says, stand firm in that true grace. And now you may be wondering, why is he telling us to stand firm well, because throughout the letter, Peter is addressing persecution that this church is facing. They're feeling a little bit shaky, and so they need to be told to stand firm. And now maybe you hear about the persecuted church, and it all seems quite distant to you. It all seems quite distant to what maybe we're going to experience here in Belfast. Maybe that's something that we're going to expect a little bit more to see in certain areas of the Middle East, or maybe in places like North Korea. But I want to suggest that Peter isn't necessarily addressing Christians who are going to face a death sentence for confessing Christ. Instead, instead it's actually much closer to what we're probably going to experience in our offices. 
And there's a number of clues, I think, which tell us that in the book. So turn with me to chapter 2 and verse 12. I'm not going to be jumping around the whole time, but I will at the start. Chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so these Christians, they're doing good, and yet they are being called evildoers. There was probably a point in all of our lifetimes whenever uh, Christianity was seen as something which made you quite an upstanding citizen, when it was maybe quite favorable to call yourself a Christian. But I think those days are slowly disappearing, aren't they? And it's looking a little bit more like what First Peter describes here. We might be doing good, but we're called evildoers. Because, well, our culture, it seems Christianity more and more as something which is problematic, not as something which is favorable. I mean, we could be the kindest person in our office to our gay co-worker, but we're probably still going to be called homophobic simply because we're Christians. Maybe we're doing good, but we're called evildoers. Turn then to chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. And what we see this time is these Christians are being slandered. So people are essentially talking about them behind their backs. And that's not an unusual experience as a Christian, is it? You leave the room and then comments are made about how ridiculous it is that you actually still believe that stuff. Or how maybe you're just so stuck in your ways. They're being slandered. And then in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. The culture around them are living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, idolatry. And verse 4, well, they think it's strange that you don't join in with them. And so what do they do? They heap abuse on you. Maybe you've just been to your work Christmas party there uh, before, um, before Christmas. And, well, there was a lot of alcohol consumed there. But you didn't join in on all of the drunkenness. And because you stand aloof as a Christian, well, maybe you notice that you started to get some eye rolls come your way. Or maybe a few snarky comments were made. Or maybe you've started to get excluded from things. Or some nasty comments started to slide through some looser lips. And now this all sounds quite ordinary, doesn't it, compared to open doors? In fact, It sounds quite like the suffering that we're probably going to experience here in Belfast. But Peter knows that even this low-level suffering, it can cause us to bury our heads and to just blend in. He knows that that saying that your mum maybe taught you that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt you. Well, that's not reality. Sure, it's it's not true. No, he says, I want you to know the true grace of God and to stand firm in it because I, I know that the temptation is to draw back. I know that it's hard. And now, we know that the people that Peter is writing to are really Christians because if you look there at verse 1, well, firstly, sorry, that they're, they're suffering for the right things. We've seen that already in the context. But also, if you look at verse 1, Peter refers to them as elect exiles. And everything which is going to flow on from this book is going to come from that that reality that they are elect exiles, hence why we named the whole series that name. They are elect, they are chosen, verse 2. 
They are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They are personally known by God. And it's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit they have been set apart by the Spirit. And it's for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. It is so that we say yes to his grace and so that we are washed in his blood. They are chosen people and yet they are exiles feeling like strangers or aliens in this world because as we've seen already that they don't fit into this culture now if you've ever moved away somewhere you'll maybe know something of what of what that feels like in a different capacity maybe i don't know you've gone to university to study somewhere else or maybe you've spent a bit of time working elsewhere or maybe even you've come to live in Belfast here. And initially it's quite exciting, isn't it, whenever you move somewhere else, but often it doesn't take too long before you feel a little homesick. I remember literally only going as far as Dublin for university in my first year. And I do remember whenever I moved to the accommodation there that there were evenings quite near the start where I just sort of missed my people. I missed knowing the area around me. I missed having this group of people where I really fitted in and where I was just easily accepted and everything was quite easy. And that feeling of homesickness is gonna be a reality for Christians in this world because we don't fit into our culture. In fact, sometimes we don't even feel like we fit into our families. And Peter knows that he isn't describing a niche group of Christians here whenever he calls them this elect exiles. He's talking about the normal, everyday experience as a Christian. We are elect exiles, chosen by God and yet strangers in this world, destined for another home. Now remember that Peter's purpose in this is that we would stand firm through the trials. And so what he's saying is, I know that the reflex is to pull your hand away whenever it gets into the fire. In fact, biologically, I know that that is bypassing your brain to be a reflex. I know that this is just instinctive. When your hand gets put in the fire, you immediately want to draw back. But Peter is writing this letter so that you might somewhat be able to override that reflex when you start to feel the heat as a Christian. We've probably all been there in the office when some heat comes our way and we automatically think, don't we, withdraw. And maybe that doesn't mean totally leaving the room, but at least maybe just stay quiet while this conversation's going on. Maybe don't say what you should say now. Or at least blend in with the rest. Make a, make a comment which just passes you by. It's somewhat instinctive to do that, isn't it? Because, well, we feel like aliens in this culture. But Peter wants us to override that so that whenever we feel the heat and whenever we experience these trials, we say, no, this is normal. This is actually okay. It's not that everything's going wrong here. This is actually how it's supposed to be. We are elect exiles. However, this isn't uh, an easy task, and he knows that, so he's going to give us some motivation for keeping our hand in that fire a little longer. So firstly, he says, remember your inheritance, and we see that in verses 3 to 5. 
Peter says, look at what you have been given. Verse four, it is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It actually seems to be so wonderful that he can't even describe it exactly. He just uses three negative words to say what it isn't going to be. It's not perishable, and it can never spoil. This isn't going to be like a fine wine, which maybe somebody has bought you for, for the day that you got married, and they've, they've tucked it away in their cellar, and it's been sitting there for years, and then by the time you get married, they give you the bottle of wine, and well, it's turned to vinegar. Now, Peter says it's not going to be like that. It will never spoil. And nor is it like an expensive painting, which maybe somebody has given to you in their will, and, and you're really excited for it until you see that it's sitting at the front of their living room window with the sun beating down on it and all, beating down on it and all of these beautiful colors that were once there are just slowly fading into various colors of gray and brown. No, this inheritance, verse four, it can never perish, never spoil, never fade. Nothing can happen to it. And I want to point out that Peter brings up this theme of perishable and imperishable quite a few times, actually. A little later in the chapter, he puts flowers and grass at one end of this scale. He puts the flowers and grass at one end of this scale of perishability. I mean, nobody leaves a vase of flowers on their tables expecting them to last the year, do they? No. They're very perishable. But I wonder, if you were to pick something to go at the other end of that scale, what would you choose on that scale of perishability? You'd probably choose something like gold, wouldn't you? I mean, it outlasts generations of people. It doesn't really decay. It's not going to oxidize. And it's not even going to lose its value. But Peter actually says in verse 7 that compared to your faith, Gold is pretty perishable. And so he's clearly working on a slightly different scale than we maybe have in mind. And when eternity is part of that scale, well, actually it's your faith and your inheritance which are going to last. They are the imperishable things. And we know that they are going to last because the inheritance, verse 4, is said to be kept in heaven for you. It is kept in heaven. And now, well, you're maybe thinking, okay, well, that's all well and good. If the inheritance makes it to the end, that's great. But what actually if something happens to me? What if the wine makes it to the end? What if, what if the wine gets there, but along the way I maybe get COVID and I lose my sense of taste or smell? What if that happens? Well, Peter says, not only is your inheritance being kept, but so are you. Verse 5, he says, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You are being guarded by God's power. So you really can look forward to this inheritance with expectation and with assurance. Like, do you realize how rich you are, elect exiles of Ravenhill? You have been chosen foreknown, set apart, washed, forgiven, and given an imperishable inheritance. Do you realize how rich you are in Christ? And not only that, do you see how it comes to us in verse 3? The undeserved nature of it. It says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. 
It's a brilliant illustration, this new birth, because, I mean, of all of the things that we can claim that we have achieved for ourselves, being born just isn't one of them. Sure, it's not. It's totally given to us. And notice that he has given us this new birth into a living hope, not through our own effort, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So normally, and I'm quite aware that you will know this, you receive an inheritance when somebody else dies. That's not new. But this inheritance, it works a little bit differently. This is an inheritance that you're going to get whenever you die. And now maybe that seems like a bit of a waste. Why would I get it when I die? What use is it to me then? Well, if you're a Christian, then after you've died, you're going to be alive again. And that isn't just based off wishful thinking. We know this because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was dead and then was alive again. And that's why it's described as a living hope. That's why Phil Wickham in his song describes Jesus as the living hope. Our hope is alive as long as Jesus is. He has been resurrected from the dead and so too one day will we. And verse 4 says that on that day we will receive an undeserved, imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance which is secure because it rests on Jesus, our living hope. A Christian is not at home. A Christian is an exile. A Christian is homesick. But looking forward eagerly to this imperishable inheritance which is ready to be revealed in the last time. It is waiting to be unveiled at the return of Jesus. Elect exile, you have much to look forward to, Peter says. There is an imperishable inheritance. The second reason that Peter gives for keeping your hand in the fire is to remember the time scale, and we see that in verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And if you want to flick towards the end of the book then in chapter 5, verse 10, sorry, I said I wasn't going to do this again, but I did. Uh, if we look at chapter 5, verse 10, he says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That glorious and imperishable inheritance, which is secure, is also an eternal one. And with that perspective of eternity in mind, your lifespan, Peter says, is actually only a little while. And therefore, so are your trials. Being slandered is, is only going to be for a little while. It's not nice having abuse heaped on you for not joining in, but it is only for a little while. Peter's message is that trials are temporary, but glory is eternal, and so remember that time scale. The third reason that Peter gives, then, is to remember the purpose of the trials, and we see that in verse 7. Peter says, these trials that you've been given are not wasted, but instead that their purpose, verse 7, is so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
It's so that your faith may be proved genuine. We've already done the comparison of perishability whenever it comes to faith and to gold. But the other comparison that Peter makes here is what happens whenever you apply the heat? I suspect that those flowers that I, mess, that I mentioned earlier wouldn't cope too well with a blue torch. But gold actually does. In fact, gold comes out purified from that. And your faith is not only more imperishable than gold, but also quite like gold, it'll come out of the heat quite well. Through the trial, it's going to come out of the heat quite well. If you're really a Christian and they turn up the heat, well, against the odds, Peter says, it's not going to destroy your faith. And in fact, it's going to strengthen and refine your faith, and it's going to prove that your faith is the real thing. How can you tell if this bar of gold is a, is a real one or a plastic one? Well, stick it in the furnace and you're going to find out. And Peter says here, if you want to know, is this a real Christian or is this a fake? Well, turn up the heat. Nobody wants to suffer for doing good. Nobody wants to be slandered and maligned for saying that they stand by the teaching of the Bible. And so not many people are actually going to do that, are they? Unless, of course, they really trust God. And turning up the heat is going to reveal things to be as genuine as they really are. Peter says, if you are a Christian in hardship, your faith will stand. It will be proved genuine. Because along the way, the question is going to be asked, why else would I stand firm in Christ right now? If it weren't that these trials are temporary and that glory is eternal. That Christ is mine and therefore my future is secure. Peter says, look at your glorious inheritance. It is safe and you're safe. It doesn't matter how hard the trials get, your inheritance is secure. And so nothing can stop this future where you receive that inheritance. And he says as well, remember the time scale. He says, what can they do to you? Malign you? Yes. But only for a little while. Even in somewhere like Syria, they can shoot you or behead you and it's pretty awful. But on the eternal time scale, it's only for a little while because then an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It doesn't even matter if you die because this is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead into an eternity. As trials come, you may just get some assurance of the tested genuineness of your faith. Finally, many of the commentaries would summarize this part of 1 Peter as suffering now, glory later. But I don't think that that's quite the whole picture that is painted here. It's not, it's not really to sit miserable through all of the suffering and then one day it's all going to be okay and we'll maybe smile a little bit later. It's actually suffering now, yes, there are going to be trials, Glory later, yes, that is the motivation. But surprisingly, it's also joy now. Look with me at verse 8. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You haven't seen him and you don't even see him now, but one day you will see him face to face. And what a glorious day that is going to be whenever he returns. That is exciting as a believer. But Peter says that the, act, that the celebration actually starts before then. Because even now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter says this is part of the normal Christian life. This is the true grace of God. You might feel like an exile in this world You might even be made to feel a little bit silly for believing in Jesus at times. But Peter says you're standing out as a healthy thumb in a world of sore thumbs. Remember, this was also the pattern of Jesus. Verse 11 there, it says the prophets, they were trying to work out the details of his sufferings and then the glories that were going to follow. Sufferings now, glory later. And he was the elect exile who left his home to come to a world which did not recognize him, which rejected him, in fact. And yet for the joy set before him, Hebrews says, he endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, suffering now, joy now, glory later. You are on the right side of history for loving and believing in Jesus You are going to see him face to face. You are going to receive an imperishable inheritance. And just how rich you are in Christ is going to be the very reason that amidst these trials, you can be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. God, thank you that For those of us who are Christians in this church, who have been chosen by you and yet feel like strangers in this world, that you have assured us of an imperishable inheritance. We thank you that our trials are temporary, but that our faith and our our inheritance are not. That one day we will see you face to face in our resurrected and transformed bodies. And help us to keep these glorious truths in mind as we endure the everyday struggles that we're going to face as Christians. We know that temptation to withdraw. We know that all too well. But you have called us, you have chosen us to be lights in this world, to point others to this great salvation which is found in you alone. And so help us to do that faithfully. And we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus, our living hope. Amen.